Welcome to Genuine Life Recovery with me, Jody Stevens. I am here to help you and your loved ones overcome addictions. We dive into the physical, emotional, and spiritual aspects of addiction and recovery, family dynamics, codependency, and more. So welcome to Genuine Life Recovery, and I'm hanging out with my husband, Aaron. Yippee. (laughs) All right. I'm so glad you're here. You know, you've been on this show a couple times, but I don't know if we've ever told the listeners your story. So I really want to focus on hearing about your story. They call it, you know, experience, strength, and hope, which is, of course, where were you before? What was that pivotal, you know, moment to when you said this is enough? I'm done. I'm going to put the plug in the jug, as they say. And then, of course, we know what your life is like afterwards, because you and I got married after I'd been sober for like a year. And I think you had three, three. three Are you th- do you have three years more than me? Um, Let me think here. It's like two years and six months or seven months or it's a little bit off. But you know? you're almost at 20 years sober. Yeah, I'm. Uh, let me think here. We have an app for this. Oh, yeah. Better look know, at the app. So must, must get the app out so we can get the precise day. Nineteen point four one years. It says. Wow. And I have sixteen, so you can do. You're the coming up on. That. You're coming up on seventeen oh. next month or a couple months from now. Man, time flies. That's right. You know, you get the. Uh, the gray is starting to creep into my goatee, and you can see the extra wrinkles and. Life goes on. I've become one of those old timers that I used to bemoan when I first started going to meetings. Part of the reason for this show is to bring hope and healing to other people. We want you to share this show with family members, loved ones who are struggling with addiction. Maybe it's you. Part of it is also, too, to break the stigma of addiction. And, you know, we're both Christians, we're believers, but a lot of people, they don't understand addiction, A, or B, they don't want to talk about it, or C, they're ashamed of it, right? Or it's it's all of the above. Yeah, it's it's always a mix, but I think, um, at least in my story, my family is the number one impediment to my sobriety, but... Um, <laughs> Which is I how think, it often is. Yeah, I was going to say, that's got to be at least over half, maybe even 80% for, for people. It's well, in most people that struggle with addiction, or I think it's like, it depends on who you ask, 50 to 60% will say that they had trauma or abuse as a child, which was caused their addiction. And then a lot of times there can be trauma later in life or underlying disorders, which I think you and I both struggle with. For me, my addiction was treating the uh, self-esteem, the anxiety, and the insomnia. So there, there's a lot of underlying issues that people have. When we're using and drinking, we're generally trying to fix a, a problem. We're just going about it the wrong way. Most people try to uh, treat the symptoms, not the cause. Because everybody can talk about all the crazy stuff they do when they're out drinking and using. You know, the reason why so many people fail at recovery is because they don't get in there and treat the cause. Yeah, that's really true. And initially, you know, when you first get sober, that's not imperative. Like if you're listening to this and, you know, you get through this whole time that we're talking and you're confused and you're like, oh, my gosh, how did you figure that out? Right. It's not necessary. I mean, how how many years did it take you to figure all this stuff out? Like we're still peeling back the layers of the onion. So it's not necessary to jump into sobriety and dig into all your past and do all that stuff. 
and in fact, that can actually be dangerous initially. The first thing to do, right, is to just remove the substance and work with someone that can give you some accountability, right, and just help you to get rid of that substance and then slowly begin to integrate back into, you know, doing things sober, you know, just the simple things initially. They comment in uh, meetings that uh, what happens is the quality of your problems improves. <laughs> so like the first year you're getting sober, it's like, That's how in the hell am I going to get through the next 24 hours without getting wasted? And then it gets, well, all right, I think I'm going to be all right today. I don't know about tomorrow. And then over time, you start to get some distance between you and stuff like that. The thing of it is, is that, you know, a lot of people will get, you know, a year or two. I know a lot of people who relapse after a year or two sober because they only go partway through, you know, trying to get after things. So mm -hmm. you just spend the first three months just trying to figure out how to get one foot in front of the other. Where all those steps and all those meetings and all that annoying stuff comes in is it's, you know, what do you do after the three-month or the six-month point and you're not freaking out and having physical withdrawals and stuff like that anymore. That's where you've got to get into the changing yourself and changing the way you live and what have you. So that way you can start, you know, putting some distance between you and the and the use. One of the things that people struggle with a lot in sobriety is not having a concept of a higher power or having such a messed up concept of a higher power that um, it becomes really difficult to get to step two and step three. Um you know, because everybody can understand step one. My life is a disaster. Oh, yeah, I'm powerless over my addiction. I, man, I can't function, you know, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But when you go to step two and step three, it gets really confusing. And that is, you know, came to believe only a power greater myself could restore me to sanity. And then step three, of course, is made a decision to turn my uh, will and my, my life, life over to, to the, the care, care of God of as God. I understood him. Yeah. Yeah, well, and, and people that believe in God, like for you, that was an easier step. For you, it was the fourth step of digging through the goop. <laughs> but for some people, they get caught on those earlier steps because they're agnostic, they're atheists. They're, they come in, they're like, I don't believe in God. I mean, I've ran my own life and I've done such a really good job. <laughs> you know, that kind of a thing. And so that's where it can get really hard. Or the people who do believe in God, but they really don't bother um, surrendering to God, right, or, or doing things his way. There's a whole section of the Alcoholics Anonymous Big Book to help those of you that struggle with a higher power concept get through it. And, uh, you know, I've had, you know, friends. In fact, I've got a guy I'm sponsoring right now that I'm probably going to have him read that entire section of the Big Book like two or three times through in order to try to see if um, he can get past that hurdle. And in my story, I think, uh, you know, I grew up in a Christian home. Uh, I had a very strong concept of Jesus Christ being my higher power. I knew I had a problem with alcohol. I knew I was an alcoholic probably as a teenager. There was no question about it. I could drink more than anybody else around me, and I did all kinds of crazy, stupid stuff and got in all kinds of trouble when I was drinking. Had all kinds of fun, too. So that part, that was step one. Do you remember the first time you drank and how it was? Because for me, I was 14. I blacked out and pardon the, the grossness threw up all over everything. And, and I was hooked, you know, and I look back and I go, 
like, how was that fun? Like, how was that good? But there was this whole other part of it prior to going too far and getting sick (laughs) where I was funny. Life was fun. I connected. I wasn't anxious. So it was all that stuff. Yeah. So I don't know what it was for you. If it was something where you had a couple beers and you're like, wow, this is, this is how, cause a lot of people, and, and this funny cause a friend of mine where the, her doctor would say, or the doctor would say like with opioids and stuff, if you take this and you just can't wait till you're done taking it, like it's gross, it makes you want to sleep, that's a normal reaction. Right. He said, but if you take this and you're like, wow, this is so great. I feel so much better. I'm going to go clean out the garage. This is wonderful. And that's what happens to me when I would take drugs and stuff like that. And I just thought that was normal. But that's that's the addicted brain. That's not the normal brain. So if you have an addicted brain, it's not normal. So for you, what was it like, wow, this is so great? The first time I drank, I had eight beers. So that's the first sign that I was basically screwed from birth. <laughs> right. So, yeah, well, you know, because, um, and I held them down. I didn't throw up like wow. you, you lightweight. Hey, that was a vodka. I had almost a fifth of vodka the first time at 14. So there. <laughs> I was 14 too. So, you know, it just, you know, I think it, it kind of helped the fact that, uh, you know, here I am, I'm 51. I'm, you know, five foot 10, 230 pounds. And, uh, well, when I was, uh, you know, 18, I was five foot 11, 230 pounds, you know, so, um, yeah, people that brag. Sorry, I'm interrupting. You, and I know you hate that. But people that brag about their how much they can drink, you know, that just means you have a high tolerance and dependence, and you're probably an alcoholic. So like, yeah. there's really well, nothing you to know, brag about. But moving on. If you're the guy sitting on the keg, if you're the guy that drinks everybody under the table, yeah, chances are, yeah, you have a problem. You know, yeah. it's just and it might make you cool when you're 15. But sadly, it can kill you later. So it makes you a disaster when you're 35. Yeah, that's for exactly, sure. exactly. You're not supposed to be. You're not supposed to be getting sloppy drunk when you're in your 30s. You're supposed to be working and you're supposed to be responsible. But you know, for those of us that don't get over that crap when we're young, and it still goes on when we're in our late 20s or early 30s, that's that's a pretty clear indicator. It's got you by the neck. So your story, you started drinking at like 14. 14. When did did you start drinking super heavily? Because it's probably when you were... 14. Oh, okay. (laughs) Usually it's a little harder to get booze until you're like like 16 or something. Pretty much every time I drank, I just got wasted. Mm -hmm. It was just like there was no... I didn't ever go... You know, two beers used to piss me off. It was 6, 12, 18, 24 at a time, whatever. I, I knew my multiplication tables well because it was always by groups of three or groups of six. And so... Um, and how did your... So did the drinking, how did it impact um, the people around you, your friendships, your relationships? Oh, everybody I knew drank. Everything I did revolved around drinking. You know, I was a pretty darn good bowler, but, you know, anything you can do <laughs> while you're drinking alcohol is not a sport. It's a game. You used to throw a dart, shoot, pull... You know, and shoot you still beer have all your pool. teeth. Like, well, I never got into methamphetamine, so you know that. I know I'm kidding. I'm just you know bowling and you yeah. know, No offense to bowlers, but well, because you are a bowler, I never got into playing the banjo because I just didn't have the <laughs> dexterity to get in between the threads. You know, so. But no, it was you know bowling, darts, pool, 
softball, you know, that's another sport you can you know, play when you're wasted. So, um, was there ever a time though, when you looked at your, your, I, I know your story about when, cause you were super obese too, and you lost all this weight in addition to getting sober. But was there a time when you're like, man, I can't relate to people or my life just sucks. My jobs, you know, my job sucks. My relationship sucks. There's something wrong with this picture because so with addiction, the, the, how they kind of diagnose it is that your quality of life just so, so you start to develop tolerance and then your quality of life goes down, right? Most people, they're, you know, if, if this addiction's helping you, your quality of life's going to get better, right? If you're yeah. addicted, things get worse. And so when was that for you when it was just like, man, this is this, well, my, my, impetus, my life is not good right now. I think the impetus behind uh, the fact that I like drinking so much was there was just an emotional salad from my childhood growing up. I wasn't allowed to have opinions. I wasn't allowed to feel certain way I was you know normal ways of interacting with people and things of that nature weren't allowed and mm -hmm. I just knew deep down inside that, that that the way I had been raised and the way I had been told to behave was wrong but it was causing cognitive dissonance and the only way I could quiet what was going on inside of me down was by getting drunk and because I was so angry over the th things that I knew in deep down inside were wrong like the only way to cure the anger was to get drunk but that also explained why I had such a high tolerance to drink alcohol. And you didn't know with, with me, and even when I was a teenager, you didn't know with me whether you were going to get an angry drunk or whether you were going to get a happy-go-lucky, jolly drunk and what have you. So, And sometimes um, you could get both, right? <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I, I um, you were one got in all kinds of trouble. I just, you know, I tell people these days, you know, I'm allergic to alcohol. It makes you break out in handcuffs. <laughs> And most of the time when I ended up in handcuffs, couldn't figure out how the hell, you know, I'd just come, come to out of a blackout and go, wow. So I was talking about like the three steps, right? And I'm going to get back to your question about the emotional stuff. But when I was talking about the three, uh, the first three steps, it was like, for me, the problem was the fourth step because I, I was afraid to really go through and just take a look at all that crap and all that junk because that was where, and even today, you know, 19.41 years into my sobriety, I still have stuff that bubbles up that I thought had been dealt with or things that come up that are brand new mm -hmm. because there's just so much stuff. You know, there are just various things that trigger different parts of it out, stuff like that. And and, um, and quickly, for those that don't know, what is the fourth step? So the fourth step is took a f searching a fearless moral inventory of ourselves, And what that mm -hmm. means in English is yeah. <laughs> made a list of all of our crap that we could remember Yep. And what happens when you do your four-step, ostensibly with a sponsor or a counselor, either way, they're going to ask you questions based on their own life experience or their own training to try to jar stuff loose so that you put it down. Because the four-step is foundational to, um, you know, cleaning out the mess and, you know, trying to, to, to heal from it, what have you. But you have to identify it. And I was... I was so racked with fear and just repressed emotions and things of that nature that I was afraid to even look at it. And so, you know, by the time I was 27 or 28 years old, and at that point I was about 270, 280 pounds, I was living at home with my folks. I was basically a loser. I spilled beer on my four-step twice. I just couldn't do it. <laughs> but you were trying. 
Uh, I don't know if I was really in seriously. In between beers. I don't know if I was really seriously trying to be honest with you because yeah. I think um, – it's it's painful. It's it's painful stuff, and it it brings yeah. about it, it. And again, like we were talking about earlier, you know, I made this mistake. For those of you that don't know, I'm working towards my therapy license. You know, LADC, licensed alcohol drug counselor. And I realized, like in the past, when I would sponsor people, I would get them to dig too far too fast. You know, I'd be like, yeah, it's you your mother that's triggering you. I know it. And you need to, you know, do all that stuff. And a lot of times that can be too painful and there can be a relapse. And you can learn a lot from relapses. Like as you spilt your beer on your fourth step, probably the second time you realize there's something going on here. I now see what's triggering me. And you see how, how much you can learn from that. But you do have to be careful when you're working working with someone because you don't want to cause them to, to, to go too far too quick, which is why they talk about baby steps and that's why, one day um, at a time. And that's where that answer to your question from earlier about like the quality of life stuff. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I first started trying to get, well, I got kicked out of the military and got sent to a VA rehab, you know, what we call a spin dry. I managed to gut out about a year of sobriety when I was in my early twenties and then, you know, start drinking again. And then, Moved to Arizona for a couple of years, and that would be the period of time in my sobriety where I was using using drugs too, because it got to a place where the alcohol wasn't doing it anymore. But by the time I was twenty seven, I was living at home with my folks again after completely crashing and burning. Living with your folks who know you're got, you've got a freaking substance abuse problem is definitely it causes you know you have to go places to drink, and you come home. And your mom's like, "Yeah, how wasted are you?" And mm-hmm. I think at that point, like the quality of life issues for me was like um, just realizing that um, you know I couldn't relate to people. I preferred to be alone rather than with people. I had believed lies about myself that uh, you know I wasn't good enough, didn't deserve to have good things in life, things of that nature. You know, even though I had the money to buy a new car, I was still driving like a freaking 15-year-old car that was falling apart and what have you. And there was a, a just a whole variety of things where like like my self-esteem was so yeah, so tattered and so low that like I just could not do things that normal people could do in, in life and stuff like that. And, and, um, and it was made even harder with the fact that I was still living at home with my, with my folks. So finally, they decided they'd had enough of my crap, and at about 29 or 30, they just kicked, kicked me out of the house. I was finally living in an apartment, and so, you know, that was actually kind of a blessing because... And your folks were very much like, you know, Jesus is enough, right? Why can't you just quit? And that's how a lot of people think. And they didn't realize that, you know, they were just triggering me to get drunk again and again and again. And I think the fact that mm-hmm. I finally got out of the house... And I was living on my own was where I first, you know, had the hope of being able to finally just uh, get it done and uh, stop. I was, uh, I've been, uh, what was it, 2002, right? I was working as a volunteer on the Bill Simon for Governor campaign. And any of you that that are over the age of 50 in California might remember that one. It was right before Gray Davis got recalled in 2003. Well, Gray Davis was running for re-election against Bill Simon, and Bill Simon actually had a chance of beating him and, I watched that campaign meltdown, and I and well, I melted down with it. <laughs> and I came to about four or five days later. I, I still don't know how long I was. I still don't know how long I was blacked out for. I think it was four days. Oh my gosh! Um, I came to on the floor of my apartment. I had a pile of crushed beer cans all over my, um, all over the kitchen. I mean, you fit really well in in politics, though. 
Yeah, I would say that probably <laughs> 40 or 50 percent of the people I deal with in the political arena have got a have got an addiction. They're packing an addiction oh of some gosh. sort. And now you don't. Now you're like the sober one. So they'll call you out of the blue. Hey, man, I got, yeah. you know, I anyway, kind of but... stick out like a stick out like a sore thumb. Like, yeah, um, you know. The heck is his problem, you know? <laughs> I don't go to the cocktail parties and the fundraiser BS. I leave that to the candidate and the and, and you know the other people. But um, yeah, the um. So you were blacked out for yeah, four days. Yeah, just freaking blacked out for like four days, and I was like three hundred and twenty-five pounds, I think. I remember that because I I knew you from church. And I, I remember seeing you in, you were the one of the road warriors, so you would help park the cars and stuff, yep. and you were a large boy. And I would drive by you and park, and, you know, you were always, seemed cool, and you had, you know, crazy hats and weird shirts. And I remember thinking, that guy's, you know, crazy looking or whatever, but it never, <laughs> I never <laughs> like, I never got this, this vibe, like, that's my future husband, you know? So it was yeah. just wild. Well, and the other thing, too is I look like the jolly green giant actually well, that's true. be the jolly orange giant at the time because we had wore those those orange tie-dye shirts out in the parking lot and mm -hmm. it was a triple XL shirt too by the way you know I don't exactly think uh, 3x is a, is uh, attractive unless you're a football player and uh, you know those days were long gone but I mean the fact of the matter was is even after uh, what happened was like you know I came to and I, the heaviest I ever weighed was 315, I, I think. And so my guess is that it was 325. I've just used, I just decided on that number because I knew I was heavier. But I was huffing and puffing. My eyes were sunk in the back of my head and all this other stuff. And um, my head was pounding and I was, my vision was blurred and, you know. And you I were looked, on medication too, like for I blood I was on pressure. cholesterol and blood pressure medication at 31 years old. Yeah. I kind of those are the kind of things that happen when you're 325 pounds. You're drinking 18 beers a day. You know, <laughs> you know it's like, yeah, you're gonna have high blood pressure. Yeah, well, yeah. holy crap! Mm -hmm. um, but uh, that was when I actually faced the fact that well, I'm gonna have to do my four step or I'm gonna die, and yeah. I don't know how I'm gonna do my four step. You know, I knew I was an alcoholic and I knew I needed Jesus, but I would just never surrender my will to Him because I was afraid of you know, doing the four-step and doing the work of the program and stuff like that. I was afraid of what I was going to find. And that's where that, that quality of life, that vicious self-esteem cycle came in. It was only my fear of dying young. It was the fact that I couldn't walk up a flight of stairs without getting winded. It was the fact that I was jaundiced. My face was jaundiced. It was yellowish. Mm -hmm. um, all that stuff. And looking at that going, dang, I'm going to die. I'm going to die young. I'm not going to live to be 40. We used to joke when we were kids and we were doing a lot of crazy crap partying and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, I'll never live to be 30. Well, you know, here I was, 31, and yeah. despite my best efforts, I'd, I'd you know, lived to be 31. But it, for some strange reason, something changed in the back of my mind. I was like, well, I really would like to live to be 40. I don't know how the heck I'm going to do that. And so it was that fear of death for me. That was ultimately what caused me to just go through what I was afraid of. As I went through the four-step, right, and as I was able to finally start and using a sponsor, and by the way, if you meet a retired cop in AA and you can, and the guy can actually complete a sentence and is somewhat <laughs> relational, um, that those guys make the best sponsors in the world because they, they did a career listening to people's lies and BS. 
And so I had a retired cop was my third sponsor. I had one as my first. How funny is that? And he was a retired sergeant. So the guy never got into doing all that NCIS and, you know, brain. He was just purely a patrol grunt where he would go and pick up the bad guys and mm -hmm. respond to stuff. And man, what a perfect sponsor for me. And um, he just helped me plow through my crap. What happened, you see, was this, and this is, I think, one of the big lessons for me was um, 60 days into this attempt at sobriety, I hadn't, I wasn't quite 32 yet because I got sober on November 1st. My birthday's on February 14th, so somewhere in between those two days, and I just pegged the date at about 60 days sober, and Jody's heard me tell this story a bazillion times, but for the benefit of you guys listening, I got to tell it because here's this dude sitting in this meeting. And I will forever call him Rage and Ray. <laughs> and and Ray was sitting in this meeting going, I don't do the suggested program of Alcoholics Anonymous. My desire to drink and use is still strong today as it was 16 years and six months ago when I quit. And I just go to meetings and I don't drink and use in between meetings. And that's worked for me. And I'm thinking to myself, you know what? If I'm that much of a raging dry drunk 16 and a half years from now, I might as well just go home and eat my 45. <laughs> call it good because I don't want to live that way. So when I had that combined with the fact that I was scared bleepless of dying just two months earlier. And, and remind you, I had drank so much for so long that at 60 days, I was still sweating alcohol out. Because remember, I'm 300 plus pounds. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm only 60 days sober, so I'm still sweating my undershirts. Um, Did you have, like, shakes and detox and tremors and things like that? You know, it's funny. I didn't. I, I just, I couldn't eat for about, um, I must have lost probably 15 or 20 pounds after I quit drinking because mm -hmm. I couldn't eat. When I realized I was having problems eating, I stopped going to the store and buying groceries because I was afraid if I bought groceries, I'd just puke them all out and I'd waste the money. So I would go to McDonald's. And I would get a sack of the cheap McDonald's cheeseburgers because, you know, they were two for 99 cents at the time. That was before minimum wage was, you know, $150 an hour or whatever yeah, it is now. Yeah. And so it's like, you know, I, I, and so I would go to McDonald's, I'd get a sack of cheeseburgers. Or when they'd run Big Macs on sale, I'd get, you know, a bag of Big Macs. And so I would go and I'd eat a cheeseburger and then I'd throw it up. And I'd try to eat a second cheeseburger a few minutes later after I'd had some Coca-Cola and so literally it would take me three or four attempts to eat a cheeseburger. Wow. And then finally I was able to eat a couple. <laughs> and it probably, it, it took me about probably 90 days before I could eat a, a full meal. And so, you know, here I am in this, in this circumstance where I'm like, you know, physically ill from years of trying to run away from all the crap that was stuck in my head and stuck in my heart, stuck in my soul, um, you know, from my childhood and everything else that had happened to me since. And there's this guy sitting here and I'm going, man, if I just run away from my fear of dying, I'm going to be like Rage and Ray. Yeah. And I'm going to be just insane. And I might not be physically ill anymore. I might not be 325 pounds anymore. But I'm going to be as bleeped up as I was when I stumbled through the doors of an AA meeting the first time when I was 21 or 22, whenever it was, and I got kicked out of the Navy. I looked at that and I said, wow, I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to do this. Somehow I'm going to have to do this. And it took me a year, but I was able to get through my four-step 
And what my sponsor did, because he, you know, he understood what my problems were, bless his heart, and it was really cool. We would do part of it. And then I would move on to, you know, doing the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth step where you surrender it, become willing to turn it over, turn it over to God and that sort of thing. And then, but he didn't let me do any amends to anybody, which is the ninth step. But what I did was I went through the process of grieving the loss and handing it over to Jesus. And then I would go back and I would discover more stuff. And so that was the way that I did it. And slowly but surely over that period of time, I started to get some freedom in my own head. And so for me, what happened was the way that I was able to overcome the, the triggers to drink was <clears throat> as I was starting to go through and just starting to inventory all the crap, it went from all the stuff like, oh, yeah, when I was drunk, I beat the crap out of this guy and got arrested and blah, blah, blah. Oh, I got a DUI here. Oh, I got kicked out. It went from that kind of stuff to I started to figure out as I was going really, really getting into the nitty gritty of it to understanding like how things had happened when I was a little boy in elementary school mm -hmm. or how this idiot youth pastor at church or, you know, this knucklehead, you know, uh, volunteer in the junior high school ministry or other people that had been in my life and how, what they did to me, how it made me feel, how it affected me. And so, you know, I, um, God allowed me to suffer some pretty severe physical symptoms. They were a little different than the DTs and that kind of stuff, but he allowed me to suffer the severe physical symptoms, I think, in his infinite wisdom because it broke down my pride and my fear. It's burned in my head like I don't ever want to go back there and feel like that again. And like even 19 and a half years later, it's hard to talk about because like, God in his infinite wisdom used that experience in order to get me to the place where I was willing to say, all right, I've got to go through this stuff and I've got to relive this pain and I've got to get through this in order to start breaking out the triggers to drink and use that I had developed, you know, since I was nine, 10 years old would be the first, you know, times that I could really remember in my life where I was engaging in addictive behavior. Mm-hmm. The, the, the nitty-gritty of my story really was just that, um, for, for me, my bottom was being 325 pounds and being afraid of dying. But what God did was he brought angels into my life, like Rage and Ray, <laughs> and my third sponsor, who happened to be a retired cop. That was just, you know, and mind you, my third sponsor, not only was he a retired cop, but he was also a Christian. So he understood my concept of a higher power. We were able to talk about all that stuff as well. So then you fast forward to uncovering another set of fears, which is about when we met. Which is a whole nother story of God's amazing grace and timing. And we are going to share that and more next time. Thank you for listening to part one of Live Your Best Life Sober with me and my husband, Aaron. And join us next week as we continue the story the ups and downs, the good, the bad, 
and the miraculous on this amazing journey of sobriety. Please share this show again on social media or with anybody you know struggling with addiction, family members, friends, and maybe it's you. Leave a review on iTunes if you would, whatever app you're listening through. Uh, You can listen in on iTunes and TuneIn and Podbean and Amazon and most apps. And also by clicking podcast on my website at jodystevens.org. And feel free to reach out as well. My email is genuinelife at jodystevens.org. 